Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast as we begin to dive into the book of Exodus together. So as much as people give me a hard time about going long in sermons, and I don't know who would ever give me a hard time about such a thing. Cause nope, never met such a person. It would never be you, Pastor Mark. You would never. Land the plane, Chris, land the plane. You, you would never give uh, someone that you've mentored a hard time <laughs> about something that they do. But this is, this is not going to surprise some people, but some people this might surprise. I'm cutting hours of material out every single time because <laughs> the Bible is so stinking interesting. You can just go on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, yes, you can. <laughs> so emphasis on you. Yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware of what you're doing there. Everyone, so is everyone that's listening. They're fully aware that you're you're going after me. So we're gonna we're gonna run through Exodus together. This is the notes from the cutting room floor session. Where where these are the things that we can't put into a sermon. We're just gonna drop a bunch of little nuggets and tidbits, things that people might find interesting, things that other people might not find interesting, but you're listening, so then who cares whether you find it interesting or not, you're gonna listen anyway. There you go. Right? Fair enough. So Fair to enough. start off, Exodus one, verse fifteen through twenty-two. Yeah, some interesting stuff here. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other one whose other Pua. Sweet names, by the way. Yes. When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What is going on, right? So, right, at, at a very basic reading of this, you see this starts with Pharaoh giving a command to two women, these two midwives, to kill all the sons before they're born. And by the end of the passage, it's to everybody in the whole country, if you see a Hebrew boy, yeah, drown it. So I, I have read on this for years, decades even, because it doesn't make sense to me. And here's why. One, they either lie to Pharaoh or we're talking about something else altogether, right? Mm -hmm. For them to say, when you see the babies, if it's a male, get rid of it. And then they say, well, we see the babies, but it's not till after they're born. If I, if you're the midwife, you're probably yeah. still obligated to kill the baby. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so that doesn't seem to fit. And the fact that why would the birthing matter if, if he's saying, see them on the birthing stool, they're birthing then why wouldn't you just kill the baby when the baby's born? That doesn't make sense. So there, there's a, the first part. The second part is they seem to be lying, but yet they're honored by God for it. 
and they get some, like he deals favorably with them and they get things. So then there've been a bunch of writings about this saying, well, they're allowed to lie or you're allowed to lie as long as God honors you and gives you stuff for it. And I'm like, that's a terrible theology. Like that doesn't really quite work the way it's supposed to. So fairly recently, like within the last two years, uh, I was doing a bunch of study on Exodus, getting ready for this. And there's all these great little articles that you can find. And this is why I love scholars and why I love scholarship, because you'll find the, you know, the basic things out there that people just say things like, well, they're lying, but they're getting away with it. And here's what's going on. I think it's a little more complicated than that. So there's an article by a guy named Morshauser, and he is a, a good scholar who's thorough in the Hebrew, and he's digging, and he's trying to figure this out. And so here's what he has come up with in his best illustration of this. And I think you'll like it, and then I would love to hear your feedback on it so that we can kind of interact and see you know, whether this helps people or not. But the idea here of the birthing stool is not what we're maybe thinking of it. I don't know about you, but if I'm reading the story, my first indication is birthing stool must be where someone has a baby, right? It's something about when, when you start going into birth, you go to this birthing stool, you have the baby. So thinking of like home birth, you know, I, I don't know. There's all these crazy videos out there of, you know, people having home babies and I don't know. Is that what? I, I skip over those. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, yeah. As we all should, uh, unless you're there experiencing it, then it's a miracle of birth, but it's still crazy and weird and Right. Yeah, a little, a little overwhelming. The word birthing stool in the Hebrew here doesn't necessarily mean it's where the child is born. The word best connected to the Egyptian hieroglyphs is still birthing stool, but their idea was more of like a potter's wheel. And so they believed that one of their gods shaped humans before they were born inside the womb of the mother. And what they believed is when a mother was pregnant— they would come into these places, and this is what the midwives would do. They would make a concoction, have the mother drink the concoction, and based on what happened, she sweated or she didn't sweat or whatever, they knew the baby inside was a boy or a girl. That's, that's really what's going on there. So it's, it's three, four months before the baby's born. You're able to do all of these crazy, in their mind, all these crazy religious practices to then find out whether it's a baby boy or whether it's a baby girl. So then what if that's true, which... This article is really thorough and fantastic. I'm, I'm sparing you like some of the really intense details. But if that's true, if what they're really doing is the midwives are in charge of creating this concoction so that mothers will drink it or, or take it or have some kind of vision where you know it's a boy or a girl, you know, like today we say, you know, I've got Harper, must be a boy, you know, or something like there's all these crazy things that, that you know, these, uh, what am I thinking of, wives, old wives tales are of, of what the baby is inside. They believed that they could sense what the infant inside the mother was. Then it would make total sense that he would say, if, if it's a son, kill the baby, which means abort the baby. That's really what they're saying. Yeah. And, and, and the Egyptians were known for having a number of concoctions that you could drink or take that would actually remove the baby from the equation altogether. So they, they were doing abortion. They were part of the abortive practices of the Egyptians. That's well-documented. You can find that out there. It's all over the place. But then it would make sense that you know that it's a boy or you know that it's a girl, you know that it's a boy, you're supposed to rush to that house and when the baby's born, if you haven't aborted already, then you take care of the baby like at, at the, the time of birth and they just end the whole process. And then they would say, well, no, by the time we get there, they've already had the baby. Then they haven't lied. None of this, sure. it all makes to total sense. And then in that sense, if God's saying, 
well, they're, he's honoring their good decision to not abort the baby, to allow the baby to be born. And then at that point, the Hebrew wives are having babies so fast that they can't catch up and they can't stop the whole thing. Then nobody's lying in the whole situation and it all makes sense. And it also fits into this Egyptian birthing narrative of we know what the baby is going to be. Whether they knew or not isn't really the point. That That's not really the argument in this article. It's just more that's what they were talking about. And I think that makes really good sense and it makes the whole passage make a lot more sense. Fascinating. How, how does he process the the line, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them? Because it kind of suggests, you know, being midwives, it would to me it would suggest, you know, they're, they're, oh, they're in labor, so call the midwife well before they get there, the baby's out. Well, right. We weren't, you know, we weren't there on time. Right. And that's what he would be saying is that the, the actual birthing stool process would happen two or three months before the birth would happen. Then they would be called to come in to help birth the baby. But the Hebrew moms either aren't calling for them because they're just having the baby on their own. Cause they know the edict, you know, sure. if, if we, if we bring you in here, you're going to do this or, they are called, and then by the time they get there, they're not able to do it. It's also interesting that there's two midwives for all of the Israelite yeah, people. Yeah, as many as there were. I, I mean, if, they were busy. Yeah, if we're talking, you know, we'll talk about this later when we get into Exodus. There's some discussion about the actual number. But the number by the time we get to the end of the book of Exodus is 603,550 men. Yeah. Which would suggest a lot more 1.2 million minimum, not counting children. So some have suggested this is an exodus of three to four million people because you've got children and you've got this rabble that's coming along. So if you've got big farming families, you've got a lot of people to deal with. So imagine having 1.2 million or, you know, 600,000 families to deal with. You don't have time to get there. So the other possibility is that these midwives just aren't able to catch up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like if you just run the basic math, it all starts to make sense of, yeah, actually the Pharaoh's given them a job that's impossible, yeah. which then is why in verse 22, Pharaoh says, everybody who finds a baby should just throw them in the Nile. What's interesting then is that's exactly what Moses' mom does. Right. She throws them in the, in the river, but she does so. Gently into an ark. Yeah. Which we'll get into that in the next episode. <laughs> you know, it's, it just speaks to, you know, if God is in it, they can't be stopped. You right. know? So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew. You know, it, it, it's as though, yep, he's saying, no, you, you're not stopping my people. Whatever your tactics are, whatever you're, whatever you're going to try, it's not going to work. Totally. And I think the big thing for me is my takeaway on what I just shared, whether you, you know, whether the listener right now is, is connecting with this or not, or you know, if you've already rolled your eyes and moved on to another part of the episode, then that's fine. But every question we have in Scripture is answerable, and it usually doesn't quite line up the way we want it to. We just need to dig a little further. And there's really good scholars doing that with passages like this. Like this guy spent years just digging and digging and digging and digging and digging yeah. until he found out, oh, birthing stool doesn't actually mean birth. It means the potter's wheel, they actually imagined a baby being formed inside the womb. Like pottery on a wheel. Right. And you can you take a, a concoction of some sort and find out whether it's a boy or a girl and then abort the baby. That 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 is a totally different way of looking at that sure. passage than Absolutely. how we look at it. And it actually makes more sense than when you read 15 through 22. You're like, oh, okay, they weren't lying. Pharaoh wasn't, you know, freaking out about them. He was saying, I want you to take care of this before this gets done. And they're saying, well, we, you know, we get the test before we go back to take care of the problem. The baby's already been born and, and, and we're stuck. Pharaoh wouldn't have batted an eye. Because if I'm Pharaoh at that moment, I'd be like off with both their heads 
they're lying to me. This isn't good. But he doesn't do that. So it suggests to me that there's more to the story than what we originally read yeah. at face value. I think it's fascinating too. It's, you know, okay, we're just going to get rid of the males. And yet you've got all these women who are, can reproduce as well. I mean, so that that's an interesting dynamic there too. Sure. But even think about the fact that, you know, they're using these slaves now for so much and yet they want to get that population down because sure. it's starting to scare them. It's like it's getting out of control. And, you know, in many respects, okay, there could be another argument. Well, wouldn't you want more? I mean, they're up with all they're doing for you. But I think the, the writing sort of on the wall there, maybe in Pharaoh's mind going, oh, this could be a problem. And, and there's this fear that we're going to be overtaken. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And you think about it too. What is he really asking there? You know, if there aren't enough husbands to marry, is he hoping that the Hebrew wives start to marry within to the Egyptians? Is he trying to pull this whole people group into his people? You know, I don't know if they would even have been up to that because they didn't like shepherds. That's why they stuck them in Goshen. They're like, it's yeah. fertile land. We'll let you stay there. You know, this is where you're going to be. It is interesting. And, it, and it's not uncommon throughout human history to be afraid of, of a population, whether it's slaves or something, where then you try to find a way to sort of proactively handle the problem that's coming your way, right? And so in his mind, his best scenario is, let's make sure that all the, the male babies are, are gone so that I can control them. What's odd to me is, what world does that work? Like, what, what human people of, of all time, throughout all of history, have ever thought, oh, they're just going to kill us off. That's totally fine. We'll just sit back and take it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. Or participate in it, yeah. No, it just, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, for those who are listening to this and you're like, yeah, what did the, you know, what did the Israelites do? We we know from this passage and, and a couple other places throughout the Bible, they made Pithom and Ramses, which are, are store cities. These aren't the pyramids. The pyramids were made centuries before. So some, I know some have asked over, you know, the last even couple of weeks of, you know, what did the slaves do? The Israelites were not involved in making the pyramids. They weren't even there at that time. They weren't even, it wasn't around the same time frame at all. But slaves were used by the Egyptians for centuries and centuries and centuries to do everything. So they would have been building these cities, massive, you know, palaces and things like that, but not, not the pyramids. But with that said, you know, you got slaves that are multiplying. They're multiplying faster than you'd like. Think about it in the sense that you have a very, uh, civilized Egyptian population that their their birth rate may be a little lower than others because they're utilizing some of the practices like abortion or others, which is sad. And they've got a mindset of this is how we want to create our culture and develop who our people are. And then you've got this group over here that have a different set of values. They have a different God that they follow. And they're just doing whatever they feel led to do, and they're not stopping themselves. It starts to get scary, right, eventually, as the numbers start to populate and you just freak out a little bit. Yeah, it's, you know, even it makes me think a little bit of the Holocaust. Yeah. And, you know, how much of that was driven by fear. And we, we don't want to think that these thoughts are still there, but I think, I think they are. Uh, you know, I think there's still that, you know, even some of the, the border issues that are brought up sure. today, some of that is, is driven by fear, right? Or, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Um, it's a sad commentary, really, in many respects, but it happens. 
and there's there's that mindset toward a lot of things, isn't there? I mean, think about the times in which I don't know about you, but I've I've heard it a lot. People moving into Freeport, and it's always well, they're from Chicago. Yeah, and, so and there's this sort of whether it's racially motivated or whether it's just violence. There's a perception of people moving from another place to your spot that you think, well, no, they're moving in on my territory. Mm-hmm. I don't love this. And we do it all the time, and it's almost subliminal sometimes. Uh, you know, I've had a ton of moments like this in my life where I'm doing something, and I either realize that I have a prejudice towards someone or something. You know, I remember working at Walmart years ago, my finer, finer days back in the day, mm-hmm. and I found myself watching certain, certain groups of boys a little closer as they walk through the store than other groups of boys. And I remember being really brokenhearted about that. Or there was one moment where uh, a friend of mine and I in Chicago were doing a, an evangelistic project and we were talking to a homeless man who happened to be African-American. And as we were talking to him, all of a sudden we had two undercover police officers right behind us and asked us a bunch of questions. They thought we were doing a drug deal because why else would two white boys be talking to a black guy in the park? Like in their mind, I think that's what they thought. And, and I felt so harassed. I felt so, and I wasn't even treated that badly, but it was just so weird to me. Like, why would we not be able to just talk to an individual? And then I, I really panicked a little bit and the police officers let us go. And then I'm talking to the, the guy as we walked out of the park, the homeless man, and he just lost it and was crying. He's like, they treat me like this all the time. Like I'm some kind of major criminal or something. Part of me thought, well, are you? Like, is, yeah. is that why they're harassing you? Yeah. Do you have a record that I need to know about? What do you have in that cart? Yeah, okay. exactly. But the other part of me was just thinking, yeah, I, I, I experienced it. They, they, they threw that at me because of this. And I'm, please understand, I'm not talking against officers here or anything. I'm just telling you, when I experienced it, I thought, oh, that didn't feel good. It didn't feel good to be thrown into a group. There's massive assumptions being made about me just because of what I'm doing. That's not... It's not healthy or help, helpful, but it's not uncommon even in today at all, right? Yeah. And to get a little bit more, uh, dare I say, edgy, um, part of even, you know, I'm very anti-abortion. There's no question about that. I know you are too, but um, even just some of the strategy in our culture mm. of where Planned Parenthoods are placed, yeah, and they're often in lower economic, socioeconomic areas. And it, you, you almost get this same kind of feeling. It's, yeah. it's, um, you know, it's bad enough that it's taking place at all, but it seems, you know, statistically like it's targeting, uh, lower socioeconomic groups. So sure. like, we don't, you know, we don't want you to multiply here. And, and, you know, we have parts of our government that want to fund it. Sure. And to me, there might be some deeper evil there than even seems. And I hope not. And I hope, I always hope that I can give people the benefit of a doubt. I always hope that I can say there's some other strategy, some other thing, but it it seems devious. It seems dark. And and regardless, that practice is dark enough on its own. So why wouldn't it be? (laughs) Yeah. If if you're hopeless and you're bringing a child into the world, there are other strategies and scenarios and people have said over the years especially over the last couple of years politically well yeah if the church would just take care of people the church is the largest adoption center in the entire world yeah. we, we have more people within our midst who are adopted and i'm talking about the church uh nationally and then i would even say globally the the christian church is known 
for yep. bringing people into our families that do not share the same blood as what we do. Yep. So we are doing our part. It, and valuing it's, life. It's ridiculous. And then we get thrown under the bus of you're, you're, you just care about, you know, one aspect of pro-life. You don't care about the rest of life. And I go, no, look at the rest of it. We, we're doing all kinds of things that fit what pro-life really is. But, you know, we could go on and on about that topic. But So we'll just say the king of Egypt was not pro-life. He was not <laughs> specifically with this group. <laughs> and it doesn't go well for him. No. And I think, I think that's my biggest takeaway from Exodus 1 is when we try to press down people that we think don't belong or people that we have prejudices toward, whatever that reasoning is, whether it's racially motivated or economically motivated or whatever motivation we have to treat one group of people differently than a different group of people, it never goes well for us. And I don't think it's supposed to, right? I mean, I think I look at the Bible and I think the way God wants to handle all of humanity is really a potentially beautiful story if we're willing to look at the other and welcome them into our family and say, come be a part of this, rather than, yeah, let's wipe them out. That's a great idea.